Hello and welcome, Axopod listeners. My name is Brandon Shu. I am here in the bunker with my daughter, Sammy Shu. Sammy. Say hello, Sammy. Hi. Hi. This week we did a webinar with Micromobility Industries talking about the insurance you need yes. in COVID-19. So I, I was interviewed by Oliver Bruce of Micromobility Industries. He hosts... My name is Melkinur. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> he hosts the weekly podcast for Micromobility Industries along with Horace over there. Yeah. We had a good conversation about insurance. Hope you tune in and hope you enjoy. Thanks a lot. Welcome. This is the Micromobility Webinar, a virtual web conference exploring the disruptive potential of small vehicles to drive big changes and how we move from place to place. My name is Luke Hopping, and I'm your host, and I'm joined today by a co-host of the Micromobility Podcast, who many of you may recognize, Oliver Bruce. Oliver, hey, how are you? Very well, thanks. How are you doing? Doing great. I hope everyone out there is staying healthy and safe and relatively sane during these uncertain times. Uncertainty is sort of what we're here to discuss, actually, in terms of how do businesses, and specifically micromobility businesses, assess risks and take steps to protect against them during a time of unprecedented global pandemic. To help us make sense of this uncertainty, we're joined today by insurance industry veteran Brandon Show. Brandon is well-suited to this conversation for a variety of reasons, most of all, I think, in that he's a very gifted communicator and someone who is good at explaining in the weeds sort of topics like insurance policies in a clear and easy-to-understand way that people such as myself can engage with and from time to time get even get excited about a little bit. Uh, he's an SVP and product liability leader at the insurance agency Christensen Group, where he heads up the company's micromobility practice. And he's also the host of AxaPod. I'll share a link for that in a minute. It's a podcast that explores trends in litigation and insurance and how they affect you and your business. Brandon, welcome. Can you hear me? Thank you. Yeah, I can hear you great. It was a very high bar you set, so I hope that I can uh, fulfill my uh, communicative skill set that you laid out for me. Okay. Uh, where are you joining us from? I'm in Eden Prairie, Minnesota today at my at our office, actually, because it has a better Wi-Fi signal. But I'm one of the few or probably the only person on my on my floor right now. So got it. OK. Essential worker. Um, OK. Yes. So uh, I want to get right into it. We're here to discuss top of mind issue for microbiology entrepreneurs. And that topic is how they can protect their business from COVID, as I said earlier. From a risk management perspective, shared micromobility is kind of fascinating and fraught because even during, you know, quote unquote normal times, this is an industry with a lot of liability vectors from bodily injury to property damage. And, you know, neither state these are not normal times. So at this point, I'd like to pass it over to Oliver to get us started. And I know that there will probably be a lot of questions as we go along. And what I would ask you to do if you have a question for Brandon or, or us, just to pop it in the QA. And we're going to leave a lot of time at the end to get to those. So reach out and let's get started. Awesome. Thanks for the intro uh, there, Luke. Brenda, I thought what we'd kind of do is uh, given us a sort of about half an hour or so to run through a bunch of questions because you and I had a, a catch-up call uh, last week. And um, I, look, insurance is one of these things in micromobility that like, I didn't, I mean, I kind of understood, I knew it was a big deal, all this sort of thing. And I've talked to a number of insurance people, kind of as, as, as this journey has gone on, but you really uh, put in some pretty stark terms. So I thought maybe what we could do is kind of cover off the interesting parts of our conversation, set the stage a little bit for um, what the rest of that conversation is going to be like. And sort of, as Luke mentioned, if there are questions that do come up, by all means, drop them into the, um, into the Q&A as we go through. I'd love for you to take us through your background because I love the story of how you ended up in, uh, in scooters. <laughs> well, I think like most insurance and risk management people, I fell into it by accident because nobody goes, uh, well, there's a, there's a few of them and I don't want to offend them, but nobody really goes to college thinking that they're going to go into the insurance industry. I, I like to say that it's like the cocktail party killer. It's, you know, it's like you're, you're talking to somebody at a party, and as, as soon as you say insurance, it's it's a very quick way to end the conversation. I always thought it would be a funny like uh, inclusion into a Seinfeld episode where they were trying to get out of a conversation instead of you know doing something like this. It was it's just let's talk about insurance, and then somebody would jet out. But uh, so no, so I, in college, I I actually interned for a ladder manufacturer, one of the largest ladder manufacturers, and that sells in the world probably uh, at the time. If you didn't know this, you will now. Uh, ladders are the, I think, the most litigated consumer product in the U.S. Mm. Outside of automobiles or 
you know, which is not considered a consumer product, but. Or, or soon to be scooters. We'll see how that plays out. Eh? <laughs> right. I was, uh, I was working there in about 2004 and we just got a contract with the Home Depot and we went from a smaller mid-sized company to a huge seller of ladders into the U.S. overnight. And all of a sudden, we started getting all of these product liability claims in the door. And I didn't know product liability at all. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just out of college. But the CFO knew that I was actually going. My, my undergraduate degree was in like pre-law studies. And I was going to pursue a, a law degree. And I, and I didn't. But uh, he knew I was interested in that. So we pursued it. And uh, he asked if I wanted to, uh, to help him you know, investigate these product liability claims. And I said, sure, why not? So I kind of went from there. We went from uh, investigating claims in all the places in the U.S. you would never want to visit to going to trials and mediations and eventually handling the insurance and risk-related relationships for the ladder company. So uh, I can tell you pretty much anything you want to know about ladders. And Yeah, yeah. well, I think in many ways quite an interesting thing in the sense of the parallels for, you know, you wouldn't think necessarily ladders are like a particular litigious space, but then, you know, very interesting to hear how that plays out. You ended up in scooters from like 2017 onwards. And, and I'd love to hear with Christensen Group, how you guys have thought about operators and manufacturers and then just the cover that you've been providing in that space so far. After my time at the ladder manufacturer, who's Gorilla Ladders, I worked for another brokerage for about six years uh, where I almost exclusively did product liability and consumer products. And one of the big things that I started doing probably around 2013 or 14, right around when the hoverboard started making a lot of headlines, I, I started insuring hoverboard manufacturers. And then e-bikes became a bigger and bigger deal, especially in Europe. And they came over here. I had a few clients start down the, the e-bike manufacturer route and then scooters. I mean, it's kind of, it sort of evolved over that period of time. And then once 2018 came and, and the scooter sharing world had kind of entered into, the, into that discussion, it was a natural kind of dovetail for me to go into it. At that time and, and today, you know, remains fairly static. It is an unknown area, but you can largely understand the risk just based on what has been going on in the product liability space with personal transportation vehicles over that period of time. So we, I came to Christensen Group in 2019, and we just started seeing a lot more of this and started trying to put some data and intelligence together around the sharing economy and, and what that means from an insurance standpoint. And, you know, that's not been a unique challenge. I mean, a lot of insurance companies and insurance brokerages have been doing that. But just given my early entrance into some of these vehicles, I, I was really fascinated with it. I'd love to break it down, but like how you think about insuring for owned, because I think in some ways that's a little bit more of an established industry in the sense of yeah. being around for a while and then into the, the the sort of the shared space and the dynamics that you're seeing in there. So if we can just kind of pick out owned specifically, I had actually missed that you had been uh, insuring hoverboards. I can imagine that. Yeah. Would have been absolutely. <laughs> uh, given how they all got banned with, uh, you know, just from a consumer perspective, it would have been fascinating. It was a quick, it was a quick stint. It's something about them lighting on fire when they're on planes. I just don't. Uh, yeah, don't yeah. It wasn't yeah. a great PR scenario. Completely. Yeah. So, I mean, up until now, the own scenario has been the product liability. You know, the, the owner of, of a scooter, a hoverboard, you know, whatever vehicle we're talking about, has not bought insurance for themselves. So the company manufacturing it has been the one ensuring that the entity that, that manufactures these have been, have been protected. So product liability is a very, it's a very difficult scenario because you have no idea how to monitor what's going on out there. There could be a claim that happened five years ago that you haven't heard about up until the time you get sued, which is largely derivative of statute of limitations and that sort of thing. So that is a very dynamic and difficult industry, especially to have any sort of predictions or projections around because you just don't know when a claim is going to come in. Is that where you have things like uh, the electric, I mean, obviously all of the standards that you'd have for, you know, standard consumer electronic products would actually be um, very useful in that regard. So can you provide kind of broad cover if they, you know, they meet all the standards? 
is there anything additional beyond that? Because, I mean, for example, if someone rides a hoverboard and they fall off it, are they are they li- is the is the manufacturer liable for having manufactured a dangerous product? There's a very gray line, a blurred line between consumer error and manufacturing defect. I mean, it it should be very black and white, but it's not because I'll I'll use the ladder example for instance. You you can't imagine something going wrong with a ladder, right? It's an aluminum rigid product that has, you know, the legs are tailed in a fashion where there should never be an issue. Uh, But what happens with ladders is that people get up on them, they push the ladder over, they fall and they fall on top of the ladder, creating this dynamic loading where their body will bend or contort or or do something to the ladder that, that makes it problematic looking, at least after the accident. So the ladder didn't cause their fall, but as a result of the accident, the ladder was deformed or damaged. Same thing with hoverboards or or scooters or anything else. There's unlikely to be a scenario where, you know, you suddenly fall off a scooter and that is, is a manufacturing or design defect. It's probably con- consumer behavioral issues on the scooter. Anybody can make a case out of anything. So it's if the medical damages are significant enough, if the person riding the scooter was a big enough earner, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of criteria that goes into whether something will become a product liability issue or not. If we just shift to, to shared, because I think I mean shared, I think is one of the ones that I don't think probably has been getting enough attention. As you've been talking, uh, you and I were talking about it. Can you take me through? How uh, insurance in that industry has evolved from the, like the very first scooters that were on the road with Bird and, and, and Santa Monica through to where the industry is at now and how they're thinking about it. Sure. So this is this is not unique to micromobility, except it's probably been dramatized in the fact that it became so popular so fast. But when a new startup industry takes place, you know, it's very difficult to underwrite. You know, nothing about it. It's it's hard to predict how people will or will not respond to, you know, these human factors that exist when you're, when you're riding a scooter, uh, much like anything else, it's, it's hard to predict how the body will interact with this device. So what, what generally happens from an underwriting perspective is, and this is no criticism of anybody, but everybody down the line from the underwriter to the broker, to the consumer, the, the entity providing these sharing platforms wants the best deal possible. And at that point in time, the data is so raw and so fresh, it's very hard to know what what that is. So a lot of these early startup industries end up being underwritten for pretty low premiums relative to where they should be. So then you have low premiums and probably low deductibles to begin with. In this situation, like a lot of others, the frequency is more than they anticipated early on. So the insurance policy almost ends up being a transaction medium instead of a backstop or a worst case scenario. Because like we're seeing in this pandemic stuff, and I'm sure we'll get to that, insurance is not meant to be a systemic cover-wide, everybody should get covered for something. It's meant to, it's meant to use the law of large numbers where we ensure a worst case scenario for a small percentage of the population. When you underwrite these things where the insureds are transacting in the policies and using their insurance frequently, it becomes a big problem for the industry. And I, I think that's some of what, what happened. And some of it is just unavoidable because it's so new. Yeah, because I was going to say, in some ways, uh, I mean, having looked at the uh, something called ATC, which is Accident Compensation Corporation, is socialized insurance, gee whiz, for, uh, for accidents. But, but what it, what, why it's interesting is because we have a data set of the entire country for all accidents that are claimed. And yeah. so we can put, we can request it. And what we've seen with scooters is that there's been a really, uh, really substantial kind of bump up uh, in the early days of scooters because everybody's yeah, effectively, you've got morons out there using them, right? right. And that's, that's, that's the sort of the story is like, oh, everybody wants to go try it. And a bunch of people try them while they're drunk or whatever, break their arm. And then, um, but over time, what you find is that the injury rates per kilometer or whatever substantially decline. In some ways, it's the way that you're talking about it, and the way that um, you know, in the in the early days, you you obviously want to write a cover so that you can get you can get the business because it seems like a you know how a great easy easy business to go get. And yeah. at the same time, you've also got 
typically that's when the most dangerous behavior occurs before everybody kind of works out how to use these, this new form of transport. It's almost like a perfect storm of ending up in a really crap situation with insurance cover. So talk me through what's happened since. <laughs> I'm going to use the ladder analogy again. So when somebody goes and buys a ladder, the, the accident will happen within a, a close proximity to the time that they buy the ladder. And that's, it's right. because the people don't either don't know how to use it or have, Maybe they haven't used something like this in a long time. The the old adage, it's like riding a bicycle, probably falls uh, very much in line with what we're talking about here. I, I mean, I think it's a, a very much a human factors thing. So right off the bat, people were not familiar with how to use these products necessarily, or or at least how to use them well. So there was this you know big spike in accidents right away because you know they're, they're getting accustomed to how to use them, and the more time that has elapsed from the beginning of this micromobility and sharing platform phase to now, people become better and better at, at using them. But also, you know, there's there's more instruction out there as well. There's more bike lanes that are that are taking shape through. And you've US got other people who have Europe. used it teaching the other people, you know, it's like, hey, let's go get a scooter together and we'll teach you how to use it, et cetera. Like I I hear you. The thing that I found really interesting as we were prepping for this was just as a result, what's happened for cover. So, you know, like who are the people yeah. who are providing cover in the industry and like how, how, are that, how has that dynamic worked out? Probably rightly so. You start out with kind of a, a big net of underwriters that are willing to do something. And then once the data is more realized, you have this kind of funneling effect where fewer and fewer people are experts in a given path and the insurance industry, not unlike a lot of others, are, are becoming more and more niche. So carriers don't want to write things that they're not good at writing. You have auto carriers out there that just do trucking, and that's all they do. Uh, you have technology carriers out there that are just writing technology-type risks. You know, they don't want bodily injury exposure. They don't want big property exposure. So now we have an insurance industry that's become very, very narrow as it pertains to micromobility. And nobody is doing it that doesn't think that they're really, really good at, at doing it. Like other industry verticals, what's going to happen inevitably is you're going to have these people who work for carriers that are writing micromobility that split off and go join another carrier. And then they're going to develop a unit within that insurance company that gets micromobility focused. And that'll happen a little bit and it'll become more um, more expansive that way, but that's usually how it goes. It gets real narrow and then gradually starts widening as the, again. As the industry kind of like matures and people realize it's a thing, et cetera. Right. Um, and the they figure out how to make money at it is the most important. I mean, you can't do this if you, if you're not making money. I mean, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah, totally. And in that regard, so as you say, the risk calculation in the early, in the early policies probably was way off. What has yeah. that done in terms of now? So like based on your understanding of where we're at at the moment, as a percentage of operating costs, what are you seeing for the people that are now getting insurance in the, in the shared space? How's that, how's that kind of played out? If you were to go out and like go through the aisles of a Target store or something like that, and all the manufacturers that sell to a Target buy product liability insurance, right? So if you're selling lanterns or you know lighting or whatever it is, you're being rated as a, as a manufacturer off the volume of sales you do in an insurance policy. So let's say you make lights, pretty benign, innocuous uh, product. You're probably paying like a less than a, if you're a big manufacturer, you're probably paying like less than a dollar rate per thousand in sales. Okay. Um, if you are a scooter fleet operator, you're also being rated off sales. These operators, you know, they span in terms of how large they are, but, you know, most of them are probably less than $10 million unless you're a, you know, burger or lime or, you know, a really large operator. A $10 million operator is probably paying like a $30 rate or more per thousand in sales. So we're talking about a, a scenario that's probably 30 times that of somebody just operating the same size business. Now that, right. that might be a, like a very broad cat, category uh, generalization, but uh, yeah. yeah, that, that it, it's much, much more expensive than uh, what you would be doing in any sort of other industry. 
for example, the old city bike um, in New York, yep. for example, that operates a, a bike share as operator, it's mandated by the city, all that sort of stuff. How would that compare with, for example, a new dockless operator? Scooters are still drastically more difficult to insure than just normal pedal-operated bikes. But pedal-operated bikes are, are, you know, if you had a fleet of a few thousand, you'd still be paying a nice, you know, a premium that's probably well above what a, a similar business in another industry would, would pay. Uh, just because there is risk of falling off an elevated product, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, if there's a if head to ground, you know, is, is elevated in any way, it's it's usually going to be a more expensive insurance product, just because the potential to fall and hit your head and have a, a serious accident is is there much more than it is in other in other types of businesses. The thing that struck me about all of this is that I'm trying to work out from a micromobility perspective: uh, is this structural or is it a temporary? As we just work out and we get better data. Can technology solve for this? Can how much solve for this? Can can these other things like that we can see coming down the pipe in terms of tech or the vehicles themselves actually um, kind of like change that risk profile? Because it, if I think about it, it's like somewhat existential if it means that an operator can't operate a, a shared scooter service because it's literally yeah. like the insurance premiums are so high, right? It's a good question. I think it's very dependent on how the industry grows up um, and whether there's mass consolidation among these operators or if they're still very fragmented like they are today. There's there's Lion, there's Bird, there's Uber and Lyft, and, but there's a lot of other smaller operators out there that are, you know, a million, 10 million, 20 million, you know, in revenue uh, all over the country, all over Europe. And there's a lot of obviously great entrepreneurial benefit to having that. So I'm not advocating in any way that we should see consolidation. But I think when you have that sort of fragmentation of an industry with high frequency, it's it's really difficult to level off or reduce volatility in insurance pricing because they're never going to be able to structure their insurance policy in a way that's insulating the insurance from their kind of excessive risk that they have within their own business. Whereas it, you know, you if you have a really large operation, you know, you can put really high high deductibles and self-insured retention place to buffer an insurance policy from you know the, the transactional uh, bumps in the road in terms of claims that are coming in the door. Uh, you know, if, if you're good at buffering those claims, you're 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 not going to be spending as as much money on insurance. You might be spending more on the legal cost to defend those kind of bumps in the road, but at least you're in control of that and they come as they do instead of having to pay it in premium all up front. I think it's a difficult question to answer. I want to shift onto uh, just sort of what you're seeing in the market right now around coronavirus. And then um, talk me through kind of generally speaking, when we think about insurance uh, that is available for the space and how the, and how the industry is evolving. And then how you guys are thinking about like, obviously COVID shutdowns, all this sort of stuff. Like, is there anything in there that you've got from an insurance perspective that is helping out or trying to help out operators? Yeah, I mean, and this is a big industry-wide, not just micromobility, obviously, but it's an industry-wide search for coverage. We have a coverage in insurance called business interruption, and essentially what it, is, what it does is cover a business that is shut down due to some sort of physical damage that their property has sustained uh, or their operations has sustained. So a good example of that would be you know, you have a fire in a warehouse and you were unable to have sales for the month of May or April. An insurance policy would cover that because there's physical damage to the warehouse that stopped you from selling your product or whatever you do. This is a different scenario where you have a shutdown and an inability to operate, but there's no physical damage. You have a, this invisible predator, this, this virus, um, so, and there's exclusions in business interruption policies for communicable diseases and virus, but there's also this very you know big roadblock of needing to have direct physical damage, which it doesn't have. Right. So the insurance industry is trying to figure out how to help these people. There's you know unfortunately some legislation that's in lawsuits that are attempting to take place out east to to force insurers to pay for this. You know there's there's not enough money in the insurance industry. I mean, we've seen what the PPP loan and everything else, how much money it actually takes to make businesses whole here. And it's a lot of money and something like that would be catac- 
catastrophic to the insurance industry. So it's unrealistic to expect a solution from the insurance industry. But what we learned after 9-11 and terrorism coverage was maybe there's a way to meld government and insurance together to make a solution that is more practical in nature. The insurance industry is very good at adjusting claims and figuring out if a business loses money, where are those losses happening and how to rectify them through their insurance policy. So if there was this, there's legislation right now for a a pandemic risk uh, insurance act that is trying to find a federal you know, way to, to stimulate an insurance policy that then becomes adjusted through the industry and paid out in a timely manner and to those that are actually affected by the business loss instead of just anybody who has payroll. And, and the PRIA, do you know um, kind of the status of that? Like how far along is that? Is it likely? And would it be effectively, is it like the government just backstops the entire insurance industry to be able to cover the business losses? Is that the idea? I think there would be some sort of quota sharing scenario where the insurance industry takes maybe some of the upfront capital hit and then the rest of it gets essentially reinsured by the by the federal government. I think that it's it's being looked at very diligently. The issue that I see is the federal government has already paid through the PPP loans. I would think that from a retroactive scenario, you know basis that is unlikely that we'll see an insurance solution redundant in nature and then, you know, pay out on things that have already theoretically been paid out on through the PPP loan and and other things. So I would guess it's more of a go forward action instead of a retro action. Uh, So it just depends on how all of this gets kind of sorted out. But I think there's a very good potential. We have a PREA policy on a go forward basis, but obviously that doesn't do anything for us today. So. And timeframes on that? Do we know kind of ballpark when you when when that might be in theory expected if it was to come through? If there was a realistic solution through Priya that it would be in relative short order, just based on the hype that it's getting and the press that it's getting, it'd be a very complicated solution that would take a lot of behind the scenes activity to actually implement into the industry. So I'm sure um, it'll be two stage that way. Yeah, absolutely. I got sort of two quick questions to, to finish off, and then I, I was thinking we can start going to start going to questions. Um, based on all these things that we've been talking about, obviously, I'm I'm really curious about how do you see the industry playing out? Is this tr- structural or temporal? Like, yeah. if the industry is going to continue on forward, especially in the shared space, what are we likely to see in terms of how the industry is going to adapt? And then the follow up question to that is, is really like, what can people on this call, for example, or industry players be doing to improve their opportunities for insurance costs to help kind of like meet you halfway a little bit, if that makes sense. I mean, I think one of the biggest things going forward is going to be the quality of submissions and the submission being, you know, when when I, you know, have new clients and I get to understand their operation and then I take their information and relay it to an underwriter, the quality of that and the communication behind that is going to have to become more and more of a of a big focus for everybody. Not that it hasn't been in the past, but gathering that information in terms mm-hmm. of safety and protocols and uh, making sure that you have really good data to support what your your fleet deployment and uh, t- you know talking about differentiators one versus the other. And everybody has you know their set of differentiators that they can sell and talk about. But that's going to become a really important focus as we go forward because we, we are seeing now more insurers start to think about developing their own micromobility practices. So I think we will see more op- opportunities, but they're going to be really, really scrutinized, making sure you're really high quality and, and thinking outside the box. I think you and I talked about some sort of helmet solution eventually for, for this. And I don't think there's ever going to become a time where you absolutely have to wear a helmet. but it might from case to case uh, where an insurer is requiring you to wear a helmet. I mean, I don't know. And that's going to have all sorts of new, you know, regulatory hurdles behind it from microbial to how do you fit a helmet on a scooter? I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of difficult discussions that, that have to happen there too, but the safer standards you have, the better information you have, the better you're going to be able to secure the most affordable insurance policy. And frankly, the, the better the relationship 
you have with your broker and that your broker has with, with the carrier. The one part that I'd, I'd also kind of cite in, in our discussion came up is this idea of that there's going to be a point at which in the future that the liability goes off the operator and the, the rider picks up the liability, right? Because right. you think about it and, and, and at the moment, even with shared, oh, sorry, owned micromobility, it's like, I don't, I don't think I even have insurance. I mean, in New Zealand, I don't need it by the sounds of things. But um, in the US, for example, if you're riding around on an e-bike, it's not like an auto, you don't have auto insurance, right? It's kind of... Right. Um, and so, so a good example of, of that is like the moped. The moped doesn't require a motorcycle license. It requires just a normal driver's license, but they're plated. And then once something is plated and, and regulated by the Department of Motor Vehicles, it becomes an auto insurance play. So you are required to have auto insurance as a moped own, moped rider. And if you have a fleet operation of mopeds, you are also required to have auto insurance to basically sit excess of the rider's coverage. So I could see something like that where scooters go that direction, where either it becomes very ubiquitous, uh, riders you know, just have all of this opportunity to buy like an annual scooter policy, which I know we're working on and I know a lot of other people are working on uh, finding ways to sell insurance directly to riders on an annual basis, maybe, or as part of an employee benefit package or, or what have you. But it could also be regulated at some point, especially if during the urban design and urban architecture discussions that are taking place around the country and around the world, should we treat these more like a you know regulated vehicle and less like somebody going out and riding a bike yeah absolutely luke how are we doing on questions at the moment lots of things coming in well i'll just to finish that off brandon thank you that was a brilliant conversation i really appreciate it thank yeah. you. the anecdote about seinfeld got me thinking that if george costanza was <laughs> lying about being an insurance agent he would probably say <laughs> ladders he never would have picked insurance <laughs> i'm in ladders um <laughs> Yeah. Actually, Oliver, are you able to see the questions coming in yourself? You may be able to do that. Uh, I can. There we go. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. All right. All right. This one here is from Chase Stubblefield. So um, can you tell us about how microinsurance sales, so like what the sales have been over the last two years and then in the last two months? I believe that kind of is curious to see how that, you know, obviously how the industry's evolved and over that first kind of took the crazy two years and then, and then obviously how that's been impacted in the last couple of months. Is he referring to sales of insurance? Yeah, so so if we look at it from the kind of the operator insurance, so what's the cover? You know, like how is sale? Has it been obviously like a giant hype bubble in the beginning, and then and then it sort of tapered off, or has it been consistent throughout, or how, how's that looked? I think it's been exponential in terms of it's probably the premium that you're seeing, and and rightfully so, probably in many cases, just based on the data set that we do have. Uh, but like I said before, the quality of the submission is greatly can influence pricing. So, but yeah, I mean, from day one, I'm, you know, you, you had, like I said, premiums start out low because nobody knows what they're doing. And then gradually over time, unfortunately, the claims have backed up the premium in this scenario. We have something in the industry called a loss ratio or combined ratio, which is essentially the profitability of the insurance policy over the, ex- or, you know, the total cost over the expenses creates a ratio and you know those ratios have been very high you know versus many other industries so until we get that ratio down it's going to be very case by case and you're going to have to make an argument that goes against the trend of the industry to be able to have you know any sort of real impact on pricing there's a gentleman here called uh, Max Ristallian, and Max uh, writes that the part of the uh, challenging getting insurance appears to be that insurance companies don't yet fully understand the risk exposure with regard to e-scooters and, and shared. And so the question that he has is around, are they starting to get more data that obviously help in, uh, and lower insurance premiums? And then I want to have an, I want to add a kind of additional layer to that, which is what can the industry be doing? to help better improve that data set for you guys uh, as an insurance company? There is a lack of understanding. However, I think there's also a big lag in, you know, the information. So like uh, in, in many instances, we have statute of limitations that prohibit kind of the data collection. So, you know, if you're injured in 2019, you might not file a claim until 2020 or 2021 because the statute of limitation in your state is two years or three years or six years, depending on where you are. Um, so that really 
puts a strain on our ability to to really understand uh, the full development of a claim. We can kind of use analytics to develop claims, but it's it's very difficult to develop liability claims because you know bodily injury and and those sorts of tort actions are are so are so intangible. I mean, there's no you know, if, if you break your leg, you're owed this amount of money. It's, you know, there's all these intangible factors that are kind of invisible and pain and suffering is involved in the U.S. And you have punitive damages that can sometimes be involved. So there's all these like heightening senses that can make something more valuable than, than we think it will. So it's a, it's a long way of saying that data, we're gathering good data right now. And the more data that we can have on accidents and how technology are preventing accidents is, is really good, but we're also fighting this development curve where we don't know where some of these are going to go and how that is going to play into the loss ratio for insurers moving forward. Can I just ask a clarifying point? Because I'm sure others uh, missed that as well, but that statute of limitations, what, what do you mean by um, there might be an accident now and then there's a statute of limitations so you don't hear about a claim tool later? How does that work, sir? Yeah, so every state gives the plaintiff in the case some leeway or latitude in terms of when they need to file their their action. So in Minnesota, for instance, I believe a bodily injury case is a, has a three-year statute of limitations, which is the entire expanse and time of the micromobility, the scooter sharing industry. So yes. if, if you had an accident that you had on a scooter in 2018, you might not even, know, as an operator, you might not even know about it until today. Now there's some. Oh, I see. So you've got that three-year window after which the accident occurs that you, they can potentially actually file. Yeah, you might know that somebody had an accident, but in terms of if they're going to pursue legal action against you, I mean, you don't know. So that's right. that's a that's a big development disadvantage to insurers right now, because they they do these loss development triangles and actuarial studies where they'll go through and they'll take the data that you have and they'll try to extrapolate it to come up with you know like a projected loss ratio or projected profitability margin where the premium that they're charging you will make sense. I think it's just going to be very hard to use those predictions to accurately predict where we are just based on the lawsuit and claims data that we have today. Max follows up with a a similar question. So uh, insurance companies really want to know how we are going to provide uh, or deal uh, with helmets. How do we have that conversation with them? Yeah, and I've seen some creative discussions around this. Um, I've actually gotten some of my clients involved who make helmets. And I think, you know, it's gone a lot of different ways from, you know, storage and some of these like self, you know, self-storage containers where you can unlock them. Maybe you place them near like a, a docking station or whatever, or or a, for, a foldable, malleable helmet and having them attached to a device, and I'm not I'm not the czar of you know scooter apparel here. So I, I I guess I don't know the answer to that, but I think the industry is contemplating ways to make helmets available. And I can tell you with certainty that would be very influential for insurance. Yes, though, and obviously enforcing use on the other side. I mean, providing a helmet's one thing, enforcing use on the other side. I guess that's where you could structure incentives, for example, uh, or operators could structure yep. incentives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I got a question here, Oliver. Uh, yeah, from go for Akshay, who asked to be allowed to talk. So I'm going to unmute him or her really quickly. And let's see. Hi, Akshay, can you hear me? Hi. Yeah, thank yes. you. Thank you so much. Uh, the one of the main issues of micro mobility sharing sector was riding behavior, and the companies themselves have been doing training sessions and stuff like that. But I want to know, like, what steps can the insurance industry take to improve the riding behavior of the of the general public? Because that's been the biggest issue, I think, more than the helmets issue. The riding behavior is something that they want to change, and how can the insurance industry take part in it? Like, if you have some ideas or any idea, it would be great to know. That's a good question. I Correct me if I'm you know, not hearing this question right, everybody. But unlike auto insurance, like today, you can go buy a policy from Progressive and use you know their little plug-in to have a direct influence on your insurance policy. So they can see how much you're speeding up, how much you're braking, what you're doing from any minute of the day they want to. The difference here is 
like we talked about, there's no policy right now for the individual riders and people are working on it, but it's not, it's not ubiquitous in any way. So the individual rider has really no ability to influence the policy of a fleet operator today. There is some loose connection because obviously if they have a claim that's going to impact their, you know, their ultimate loss, you know, their loss profile, but what they do doesn't have any sort of direct result on the policy. So I think that changes when we have a more ubiquitous consumer writing policy in place where people will be more either penalized or incentivized from their individual rides, like an auto policy. Excellent. Thanks. Um, I've got a question from Ed, who's the lead policy and the regulatory at Bird, who says one of the policy issues that we see coming up is whether, as you point out, uh, riders of micromobility devices, both shared private, should be required to carry third-party liability insurance. What factors should inform that policy decision? Like, how are you thinking about that? From Bird's perspective? From your perspective as to whether or not that would be, I mean, obviously you'd probably want it if that was an option. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I am an advocate of people like Bird and operators, obviously. I, I think the difficulty is if it's not systemic, if it's not, you know, a, an idea that is across operators, it's going to be hard for one operator to, to say we require insurance and for another not to. I think it has to be more regulatory in nature in terms of pressing that down on the industry as a whole. Otherwise, I think you're going to see adverse selection probably happen there where, you know, people aren't going to use, you know, whatever operator is requiring them to buy insurance. They'll go to somebody else because again, it's a fragmented industry with lots, lots of players. And so. Yeah. And there's a, there's an anonymous attendee who follows up with a similar question, but asking about whether or not the general liability insurance mandates uh, have to come from cities. And so the question that I then have around that, that kind of riffs off that is like, how do we end up with an industry-wide thing? If effectively, there's no federal control. Every city regulates by their, by themselves. So you might have, you know, Chicago or, or San Francisco kind of doing this as one way to operate it. And then uh, other cities still not doing that and whether or not that would um, impact on that ability. Like, could you write an insurance policy for a company, but, you know, half their cities are rider and rider liability carry the rider liability and the other half of general? Yeah, I think it would probably end up being more of a state by state or city by city mandate. But again, it's not to the it's not necessarily to the operator, it's to the rider. So then there's this kind of difficult end around in terms of how you how you sell insurance policies to you know micromobility riders. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, you could do it through an app for sure. Uh, that's, that's one way to do it, but you, you don't really want to buy insurance per ride because that's not going to make any sense. So it's how do you sell an, like an annualized or month to month policy to a rider of insurance? Um, and I've, I've seen some of this looked at and most of the people that are looking at it are looking at it through long-term lease operate, you know, long-term lease scenarios where you're selling, uh, you know, you're selling somebody a, a subscription model or something like that where they're, they're taking a scooter for a month at a time or six months at a time. And then it makes a lot more sense because this is a real fixture in their lives and they're using it daily and having an insurance policy to protect against them doing something stupid is probably worthwhile. Very interesting. Uh, the, there's a question here from an anonymous attendee. Uh, uh, what are the main advantages and disadvantages of plating scooters uh, and and, and I, in that regard, I imagine kick scooters and regulating uh, as an auto vehicle. From a cost perspective, there, I mean, there's probably no advantage of, of doing it. The advantage would be on the part of the municipality in being able to figure out like a, tra- a tracing mechanism, like where where do all these scooters belong? Are they you know are they adequately insured? Are they up to speed on you know maintenance and that sort of thing? And then requiring the individual to purchase their own insurance policy is an obvious advantage to the city, uh, the insurance company, because it transfers risk from the operator's policy to the rider, at least a a portion of it. And, uh, you know, there's obvious kind of structural advantages to having that. But if if you're an operator today, there's probably no advantage to doing it uh, until it becomes more of a, a widespread push down regulated maneuver. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Christian here from Noah. Why the obsession with helmets when it comes to safety? <laughs> Looking at uh, cycling, the cities and countries with the highest levels of bike use also have the safest levels of bike use. So they don't mandate helmets. Helmets aren't even common. Why do uh, they design their cities and, and roads for safe travel? Why doesn't the scooter or bike share or insurance uh, industry focus on building safe streets instead of erecting hurdles to ridership through helmets? It's a loaded question. Uh, there's a lot there. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say... First and foremost, like we talked about, I, I, I would scooter riders are not experienced riders by and large. I don't think. I think like we even talked about before. I mean, there's this big learning curve that came into scooter ridership. So I, I don't think you can assume that they're they're really experienced riders or or, or have any sort of greater you know likelihood of not sustaining an accident. But there's also this very large emphasis right now in the U.S., particularly on concussions and head-related injuries, you know, stemming from football and CTE and then kind of trickling down to all these other industries, insurers have been hit hard by concussion and CTE claims. You know, it's a, it's a big concern regardless of whether it's warranted or not. It's a concern that's there. And uh, I think it's not going away anytime soon, especially as we see medical trend on the rise, double-digit rise in medical trend. We see automotive costs going up, uh, the cost to repair, you know, broken bones going up, and then the, the, the income of individuals who are injured, go, you know, going up, at least mm-hmm. until this pandemic. So, Right. I hear you on that, though. But, but I mean, I think there's a sort of follow-up question around that, which is, are the insurance industry therefore turning around and saying, we like we want to opt in or advocate for better cycling infrastructure. I mean, is that is that a you you guys lobby for a lot of different things? Is there something that yeah. you would turn around and say we actually want to lobby for for assisting with bike lanes, for example? I mean, I could see a potential for it at some point, but like I said before, it's a pretty small niche industry, and mm. I can't imagine you know insurance putting a lot of lobby dollars towards it right now. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of other things on the front burner, you know, as we look at <laughs> what as we look at a pandemic and as we look at an insurance industry that's been hit by hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in, you know, fires and earthquakes and, you know, uh, wind and hail and everything, else, you know, hurricanes and everything else. It's a really interesting and disruptive time right now in the insurance industry. Uh, micromobility is one disruption. But there's a whole host of others that are probably taking precedent over it at the moment. Yeah, fair. Uh, there's a follow-up question here. What about scooter design? At the moment, these these bars or these things are designed to uh, launch riders over the handlebars. Is there a way, for example, that uh, yeah? And I even think about it in New Zealand, which is we've had uh, we've had a couple of different designs. There's been the Segway uh, ES2s, and then the the sort of the new Okai's, and the Segways are terribly designed scooters they shouldn't have you know they were a consumer grade scooter that got turned into a shared scooter versus the new kind of ones that have been designed for sharing right from the Mm get-go um how do you think about that as you're thinking about insurance i mean i think it just goes into the discussion of safety elements that you have as a as a operator or a manufacturer of scooters even to say you know here is us versus here is the industry i mean i think it's at least now, when you have so many different manufacturers supplying to fleets, you know one can differ greatly from the from the next. I think it'll probably be more of a case by case submission specific submission difference until we see more widely incorporated technology. Technology is obviously a big deal for a lot of different reasons, including insurance, but also just the profitability of the operation and not having to sub out scooters routinely and having these things last longer and become more resilient to, you know, the number of rides that they're getting per day or per year, however you want to use that metric. But I think that's going to be important in a lot of different ways. Yeah, totally. Christian here from Mark Moretzky. Uh, Thoughts on selling opt-in insurance to the rider on a per ride basis? Do you think that that's how the industry uh, will evolve? I mean, unless you can get really, really cheap insurance, which doesn't exist. I mean, uh, mean, the, the basic fundamental problem with general liability insurance is you have this big potential for bodily injury and to spend a dollar or two dollars 
uh, with a million dollar exposure, or maybe it's a smaller policy. Let's say it's fifty thousand dollars in, in insurance you would buy for three dollars or five dollars or whatever it is. It, the numbers don't make sense because you're putting all of this limit out there and getting very little premium back for it. So unless there's a way to give excellent data and figure out during this ride, my chances of accident are X and I'm going to make this much money in, in response to this much limit being placed out there. I don't see a way to really effectively do a per ride insurance coverage. And if it's done, I would, I would assume that it's going to be a short lived scenario where it's very unprofitable after a short amount of time. Yeah, interesting. So very I think it has to be done on an annual basis to just to get the just to get the income and the premium off of it. Otherwise, it it's not going to make any sense. There's a, a further question here. How do you uh, view premium pricing in the market evolving over the next twelve months? Um, it's going to be largely driven by loss ratios. So the lack of ridership during this weird downtime that we're in right now. I mean, it could have a positive effect on the insurance industry. Uh, that's a kind of a, a broader question for insurance as a whole. Are our, our insurers going to buckle down and keep keep rates high during this time and have premiums and, and income fall? Or are they going to price their product more aggressively in order to attract people because you know they need to, just like anybody else, insurance companies have to play have to placate their shareholders and they have to sell policies. So it's going to be this interesting kind of balancing effect there. But the lack of ridership may have a positive effect on premiums. Excellent. Final question. Uh, and then uh, I'm aware we need to jump off, but uh, how do you see technology specifically software improving the insurance products and offerings for the industry? I mean, I, I would think that, you know, IOT and real time data somehow integrated into like an insured tech platform is probably would be the most beneficial and telematics is the probably the best example of how that worked for another industry, you know, the trucking industry or the delivery and auto industry, a way for um, data to be gathered in real time in terms of how people are using these scooters, how they're driving them, how they're braking them, and then transmitting that data back to the insurer and figure out a way to use that data to profile individual riders. So is there, is there some sort of, you know, criteria that makes a rider good or bad. You know, in driving, we've used credit scores for that. Will that be a play to figure out how to price insurance policies? And, and real-time IoT data is the only, probably the only way to get there. Excellent. Well, look, hey, thank you so much for this. I really, uh, I really appreciate it. I've certainly learned a lot. Um, and I, it's, and oh, it's I appreciate it. For the folks who do want to track you down, um, I assume, Luke, you'll be um, following up with that? Yeah, uh, Brendan, what's the best way? We got a lot of questions here and not all the time in the world. So I know you're heavy on LinkedIn. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you who might have insurance-related questions? LinkedIn is a great way. Direct message me on LinkedIn or you can email me. Uh, I don't know if you can post my email somewhere, but it's bshu at christiansongroup.com. Bshu at christiansongroup.com. Okay. I'm going to, before we end this chat, send around, I got your LinkedIn pulled up and I'm going to send that around to everybody in the chat right now. So hopefully they can copy and paste it before we end. Reach out to Brandon. I'm sure you guys have more questions. We're super grateful to him for letting us have some of his time today to answer the questions you did answer. This is a, you know, thicketed and dense subject and I'm glad we could kind of illuminate it a little bit more. Brandon, thank you so much for your time. Oliver, thank you for your time and I'll talk to you all more soon. All right, everybody. Stay safe, stay safe. Bye guys. Thanks, Brandon. Cheers. Bye-bye.